This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. This is our first ever show, so you will have to bear with us as we muddle through a little bit, maybe. Uh, but let's just dive right in. First up, we have Chronicle staff writer Mary Tuma is here. Uh, she's going to talk to us about her latest feature in the Chronicle, which is on stands now, about the ratcheting up of roadblocks for asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants in America and around the country. Mary, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes. So you open your piece, Complete Chaos, Local Attorneys and Immigrants Navigate a Broken System, uh, with Hilda Ramirez, who is a Guatemalan refugee who's been in sanctuary at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church with her son for the better part of three years. That's right. Can you tell us how you met Hilda Ramirez? Yeah, I mean, I um, met Hilda through an advocacy group, um, Grassroots Leadership. And, you know, I had the pleasure of sitting down with her at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in North Austin and, um, you know, getting to, to know her and talk to her. And, um, you know, she's someone who unsuccessfully applied for asylum and other measures to remain here. And ICE has really thwarted each attempt. Um, their latest attack is really quite shocking and absurd. They've sent her a more than three $300,000 fine for failing to willfully deport, and they even cite her taking refuge at the church as one of the reasons they're attacking her. And, you know, I talked to her attorney. Her attorney tells me she's never seen anything like this. Um, and it's really clearly an attempt by the administration to um, smoke her out of sanctuary and instill fear in the community and really retaliation for her trying to protect herself and her son Ivan, who's 13 years old. Um, and this has happened. There are a few cases like this across the country, right? That's right. She's definitely not alone here in Austin. Um, ICE would not give me a direct answer on how many fines they've sent nationwide, but advocates tell me there's about um, 10 people in sanctuary around the country who have received similar fines. Uh, one woman, for example, in Ohio received half a million dollars in fines for not deporting. So, you know, Hilda's attorney is strategizing with other attorneys um, across the country to come up with a legal strategy to fight this new tactic and yeah so this is this is definitely an escalation under the current administration right it absolutely is so like while these hefty fines are a new tactic of the trump administration um and one that is you know obviously a huge escalation there's it's also very indicative of all the other um you know moves the administration has made um that are completely unpredictable and just full of hostility um what are some of the other roadblocks that are being thrown up yeah absolutely i mean so in my story you know i talked to immigration attorneys who are on the front lines of that deportation defense and they describe it as this you know frustrating maze of delays and denials um and you know as one attorney described it complete chaos so some of the examples are things like bonds. You know, bonds help, you know, um, immigrants detained uh, get out and talk to their attorneys and they're able to strategize to plead asylum. But bonds are increasing. So a bond that's, you know, $3,000 is now increased to $6,000. A bond that was $10,000 is now not even being offered. So mm -hmm. it's becoming extremely difficult to um, strategize. There's also a lack of discretion among ICE agents. Um, an attorney told me that they're, you know, 
there was this client of his, an, a woman in Austin that's been living here for a decade. She's undocumented. She's a mother of three. She's a non-criminal. And, you know, in the past, ICE would, you know, just give her like an order of supervision and let her go. And now they just, just like that, have detained her in, in a South, De- uh, South Texas detention center. So, you know, and the list goes on. I mean, there's massive delays in processing applications like U visas for crime victims and green cards. And I think one of the most sort of egregious um, things the Trump administration has done is make it very difficult to um, get asylum. And that's a protection for immigrants fleeing violence. Um, You know, just even last week, the Trump administration restricted um, asylum for most Central American migrants. And the ACLU sued, and just yesterday, a federal judge blocked it. So that's just indicative of how quickly things are changing, you know, and how difficult it is for attorneys to keep up. And so... You know, um, I found out that like asylum denials so judges saying, no, you, you cannot have asylum have risen exponentially um, since the Trump administration. And um, sorry, yeah. to interrupt. there, there yeah. are reasons that uh, that previously you could get asylum, for instance. Am I right in thinking like domestic violence? Yes. And so the former AG had said, you know, he tried to make domestic violence not really grounds to get asylum for, for most Central mm-hmm. American refugees. So um, it's just becoming more and more difficult. And and, you know, attorneys, when they talked about that, they just said that was absolutely inhumane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they describe it to me, the way they describe it to me is what the administration has done is attack the systemic tools that mitigate and show mercy. So now just everything, every piece has been thrown into chaos and everything is, is a battle. And that is, I mean, that's the intention, right, is to is the creation of chaos. Absolutely. Yeah. It's absolutely um, purposefully unmanageable and difficult and um, chaotic. Mm-hmm. Well, you've spent, uh, in addition to spending time with, uh, with immigrants and asylum seekers, you spent time with the attorneys, too. Um, can you talk about sort of how they're doing and how they stay on top of the, you know, sand shifting under their feet every day? Yeah. Um, you know, I, they are absolutely overburdened. Um, you know, one attorney told me it felt like she was getting caught in a riptide every day and just struggling to stay afloat. Um, and that's sort of the general consensus. You know, they're completely, they're forced to completely change their legal strategy, sometimes literally overnight, because that's how, you know, fast things are, are changing. And the biggest difficulty is trying to explain this to their clients. I mean, their clients are confused, they're anxious, they're, they're you know, wondering what's happening and they don't have a good answer and they have no control over it. And that's a top of like the secondhand trauma that the attorneys are experiencing just, you know, listening to their clients' stories. So either way, it's been like just one of the most difficult times to be an immigration attorney. And, um, you know, if, you know, it's inspiring to see some some attorneys that, you know, didn't even practice immigration law getting in the fray pro bono and just trying to help out. But on the other end of that spectrum, you know, some attorneys are getting burnt out because of the increase in caseload and, and the stress of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you have been reporting on this story for us for months now. Can you tell us sort of what surprised you in the course of your reporting? I mean, I could wish I could say the cruelty of the administration surprised me, but that, that unfortunately does not. Um, what really, you know, surprised me was meeting Hilda and just, you know, it was really beautiful to see her strength and resilience in the face of um, all the suffering. Um, she, can, she can barely leave the church and her son can barely leave the church um, and just everything she's been through. And she's still, you know, 
a fighter. She told me, you know, we have to keep fighting because if we don't, they win. And so it was really just inspiring and hopeful to see and hear firsthand and just be reminded that through all this evil, because it really is evil, Mm -hmm. um, there are still people, you know, the Austin Sanctuary Network, these community activists, these legal advocates that are trying to fight for justice. And I think, you know, it's an easy time to get cynical, but if we kind of remind ourselves of the people in the fight trying to bring justice and hope to to people and take care of them, then, you know, um, I think that gives us all some hope. Yeah. There are a lot of local, state, national organizations uh, working right now um, to, to help out here. Uh, we've gathered together in your story, we've gathered together a list of, of resources if anybody is curious about knowing a little bit more about what these organizations are doing. And also with your story, um, we are running a Know Your Rights. Do you want to tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I would encourage them to um, go and check it out. It's um, basically a reminder that you have constitutional rights, that you don't necessarily need to open the door to ICE unless they have the proper judge's warrants. Um, And, you know, things like taking notes and taking video are important. Um, So, yeah, I really encourage people to check that out and also the resource list you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if you think this is never going to apply to you, this is a good thing to know. Absolutely. Know your basic rights. Yeah. For sure. So, well, Mary's story is on newsstands now and uh, is also available at austinchronicle.com online. Mary, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. Um, After a quick break, we are going to speak with Chronicle Arts and Culture editor Robert Ferris, who is going to talk to us about crime books, crime movies, crime podcasts, just all kinds of crime. So we'll be back in a minute after these announcements. Welcome back to the inaugural edition of the Austin Chronicle Show here in the studios of Co-op Community Radio, 91.7 FM in Austin, live streaming through coop.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. And with me is Chronicle Arts and Culture editor, Robert Ferris. Hello, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming in. You bet. So, Robert, this is the second year in a row that you have spearheaded something uh, at the Chronicle that you have christened July is Crime Month. That's right. Yes. Uh, So about five years ago when I started editing the books section for the first time, uh, I was looking through the books that were coming in, the new copies that we were getting, and I was surprised at the number of mystery novels, crime fiction, true crime books we were getting. And at the same time, PBS's history detective show was coming to Austin to do a story on the servant girl murders that had happened in the late 19th century in Austin. People say it's, oh, the first serial killer in America. And History Detectives was looking into it. And DC Comics had proclaimed Batman Day in July. of. So anyway, there was just all these things that were happening that were crime related. And I thought, well, the music section has been doing June is Jazz Month for a long time. <laughs> okay. Why don't we make July Crime sure. Month? Get a piece and of I'll that. be able to do reviews of books and uh, podcasts and streaming series, anything anybody wants to write about, their favorite mystery novels, their favorite characters and crime fiction or favorite movies. And so I put a, an appeal out to all of our freelancers and all of the staff members. Um, tell me something that's interesting to you about crime true crime, crime fiction, and uh, and let's fill the whole month with with feature stories and reviews and posts about these things. Got a tremendous response. 
was able to uh, put all kinds of things in the paper that year. And I didn't do it the following year, but I brought it back last year and this year. And so we've got a couple dozen great uh, podcasts, interviews, uh, things that we have put in the paper um, for people to who, who want to find out more about what's happening in the crime genre. Sure. And obviously, we are at the end of July now. So you've been doing this for, for weeks now. Uh, tell us about some of your, your favorite things that have run so far. Well, we we started with uh, an irresistible feature story that uh, Wayne Allen Brenner wrote. We were notified by a former Chronicle staffer that there was this amazing historical story with a, a, a wonderful coincidence at the heart of it. And it turned out to be uh, involved with Bonnie Parker's gun, Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde. And apparently she had a little pistol on her when she died that had gone missing. And someone in Austin was related to someone who had the missing gun. And Brenner is able to tell this fantastical story about the day that Bonnie and Clyde were killed, about uh, one of the men, uh, deputy sheriff, who took the shot, the first shot that killed Clyde Barrow, and a bystander who happened along uh, who was driving a car of the exact color and make of the car that Bonnie and Clyde were in. And the deputy sheriff was so freaked out by that. He was like, if you had driven by five minutes earlier, we would have thought you were in Bonnie and Clyde's car and you would have died. And he reached into Bonnie Parker's purse and took her gun and gave it to this guy as a souvenir. (laughs) And his family had had it for decades. And somebody who knew somebody, uh, it turns out that there were two people who met who were uh, relatives of both the deputy sheriff and the guy who got the gun. It's an incredible story. It's totally wild. And they'd known each other for a while before they realized they had this crazy connection with each other. It was two people uh, who taught art in Louisiana, and they Mm -hmm. did not know that they had this connection. So it's a wonderful story, and you just kind of – get sucked into it and can't believe it. But Brenner did a wonderful job of bringing that. That was our first uh, feature story mm-hmm. this year. We've done a lot with um, uh, podcasts. Uh, you know, crime podcasts are such a huge thing now. And the uh, Paramount Theater brought in a live version of the podcast Wine and Crime. This is three women talking about true crimes, and every episode they have a wine paired with it that they drink and encourage their listeners to drink during the episode. Not the Uh, only drinking and criming podcast out there. No, no, no. It's a very popular subgenre. It is a (laughs) subgenre that that has gained amazing traction in the last few years. So there's that. There are uh, the podcasts In the Dark, which had a wonderful uh, first season. Um, Podcast Dr. Death about a doctor in Dallas who it was discovered was responsible for a number of uh, his patients' deaths. 
and how that sort of played out, how we got through the system. We have reviews of those and lots of reviews of books by Texas authors. Sure. And that's both, what, nonfiction and fiction? Actually, all of the Texas authors are fiction writers this year. But there's a wonderful nonfiction book called Furious Hours that's about Harper Lee, Oh, the author uh-huh. of To Kill a Mockingbird. And this is a true crime book that digs into a trial, a murder trial in Alabama that Harper Lee was fascinated by. And she was actually going to write a true crime book about this murder trial. And Furious Hours tells the story of both the murder trial, Harper Lee's interest in it, and why she didn't end up writing that book. Huh. What's the spoiler? Do you know why she didn't? I, I, no. I don't we know that. We won't reveal. And okay. I'm not sure it's revealed in our review of it, but I think it's uh, it's the story that we get is enough to make me want to discover mm-hmm. that secret. And so what are some of the, the mystery books? Are they across the whole spectrum of, you know, hard-boiled and... They are. Yeah. Um, I, I read uh, what is often called a cozy mystery, uh-huh. uh, which is sort of in the vein of the Agatha Christie. It's a, There may be a crime, there may be a murder, but it's handled in sort of an old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And there's an author named Terry Shames who uh, has created a fictional town called Jarrett Creek, which is in the neighborhood of Bryan College Station. And in it, she's written eight books in this series. And the most recent one is called A Risky Undertaking for Loretta Singletary. That's a mouthful. It is. And one of the characters that has been in the series for a long time, um, she's a woman of a certain age, and she decides it's time to try online dating. And that's the risky undertaking because (laughs) she suddenly disappears. And the the series protagonist, uh, Sheriff... uh, Samuel Craddock is a good friend of hers, and he has to find out what happened to her. And it it's charming in that you really get to know all of the characters in the town, and the author has created such a wonderful feel for small-town life. Mm. And it almost doesn't matter what the mystery is because you love meeting these characters. There's a new Baptist preacher in town who's making all this trouble, and it's just charming. But, of course, the mystery is also really fun. There's a wonderful noir that's set in Beaumont, Texas in the 1970s. That's actually where I grew up, and I was in Beaumont in the 70s. Okay. And she, the the author, Lisa Sandlin, Uh, This is only her second noir, but the first one was also set uh, in Beaumont in this period. And the same characters appear in the second book, The Bird Boys, that appeared in the first book, The Do-Right. It's a woman who's been released from Gatesville after serving uh, 12, 15 years for a murder. She had killed a man who had raped her. And she's out of prison. She comes to Beaumont, and she's trying to start a new life. She ends up getting a secretary to a private eye who's only just opened his practice. So he's not the hardened, experienced private eye. He's sort of feeling his way along, too. And they team up, and they actually become this sort of wonderful team. And her feel for, the author's feel for 
Beaumont in that period is so wonderful. You just almost feel the humidity in the room when you're reading the book. And you also get this sense of the time period. Watergate, it's August, so the Watergate hearings are going on. And that becomes this sort of subtext for uh, for the novels, this feeling of... Uh, who are what's going on? What are our leaders telling us? The sort of noir underbelly is relates to what's happening in the presidency at the same time. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Yeah. And then we also have a Q and A this week with a mystery writer. Correct? That's right. Yes. Uh, it's uh, her name is Chandler Baker. She lives in Austin. She's a corporate attorney. She's also been writing YA books, mm-hmm. young adult books, for a while. But she turned to uh, write her first adult crime novel um, basically out of the sort of Me Too moment that we're having. And she's worked in big corporations before. And so she created this, this big corporation in Dallas. And somebody has been rising through the ranks and is about to be appointed CEO. And the women in the corporation have been whispering about his activities for years, the fact that he uh, has been a, a, a frequent harasser, that he's gotten in the way of women rising through the ranks. And Whisper Network, the title of the book, mm-hmm. relates to women in this corporation who have decided they have to stop him before he gets appointed CEO. Mm. It is a book that... Uh, Oprah's uh, magazine, O, named one of the buzziest books of 2019. And the day before it was set to be released, Reese Witherspoon named it a pick for her book club, which then made it debut so uh, it got such a, a, a huge build from that that the first week of its release, it debuted at number 12 on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. So it's getting a lot of buzz, and she's traveling around the country promoting that. So we got a chance to talk to her mm-hmm. about uh, what it's like writing a, a crime novel set in the Me Too era. Yeah, it's a, certainly a, 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 a weird and new era that we're in. Uh, I thought uh, Brianna Stallings, who did the interview, yes. uh, she called it a, a beach read for the Me Too movement, which right. I thought was such an interesting way to just sort of describe the moment that we're in and right. and also get at sort of the you know national obsession with crime stories. It's, yeah. Uh, have you thought much about why are we so obsessed with this genre and it's so many offshoots that there's a there's a there's a type of crime story out there for everybody? There is, and I. I I have thought about it. Largely, I started thinking about it, why I would want to devote a month to this. You know, what was it in my own past, my own history? I mean, I started, I grew up on the Hardy Boys and Mm. Encyclopedia Brown and and all of those, you know, that idea of mystery uh, appealed to me as a boy, but it's never left me. I mean, I've gone through all of the Sherlock Holmes books and every iteration we've gotten from uh, Basil Rathbone to Benedict Cumberbatch, Mm -hmm. you know, on screen. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with questions and secrets. I mean, no matter whether it's a cozy, whether it's a noir, 
mystery books and crime fiction deals with some kind of secret. Somebody has done something. It may be murder, it may be theft, uh, but somebody has done something that they have kept a secret, and somebody in the book is trying to find out what that secret is. And I, we all have secrets. Sure. We all have questions about ourselves, and I think there's part of us that have uh, a desire in seeing somebody else's secret found out. Uh, sometimes the mystery solved, sometimes it's unresolved, but we like going through that investigation. Mm-hmm. What are some of your, your favorites? You mentioned a few from your childhood. What what are you drawn to now as an adult? Oh, as an adult, you know, I, I think I, the, the noir switch turned on for me probably in college. And when I have a chance, I tend, I lean more towards that in, in film and television mm-hmm. and in books too. Last year, uh, another Texas author that we had a chance to showcase uh, Attica Locke. Oh, right. She uh, wrote a book called Bluebird, Bluebird. She's originally out of Houston. Uh, she's gained more fame probably for her work as a producer and screenwriter, uh, television writer, Mm -hmm. but she has continued to write about Texas. Bluebird, Bluebird is set in a small East Texas town, and she brings in not only uh, the tradition of the crime novel, but she talks about race, uh, as you would imagine a book set in East Texas. There, uh, she's African American. There are African American characters and white characters, and a lot of the tension in the mystery and the noir comes from the fact that they have lived and butted up against each other in this small town mm-hmm. for such a long time. And the second, she now has a second in the series, correct? Or is about to come out soon? Uh, a new book is about to come yes. out. And in fact, she'll be coming to the Texas Book Festival in October mm-hmm. to promote that. Yes. And they always have a big crime writer contingent, too. Yes. There. Yes. yes. Uh, favorite movie, TV? Oh, <laughs> again, where do we begin? I know. But since we were talking about noir, um, one of the things I've been thinking about is... Uh, you know, the great noirs that were produced in the 50s, 40s, and 50s. Double Indemnity is oh, one. Sure. I think we share that mm-hmm. as, a, as a crime film that we love. I mean, when you pair people together like Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, uh, and it gets dark. Oh, <laughs> the shadows, the shadows, yeah. the blinds. Yeah. And I also really love Edward G. Robinson in that as the, you know, there's this insurance scam and Fred McMurray is trying to pull it off with Barbara Stanwyck. But then in the background, you've got Edward G. Robinson as McMurray's boss, who basically gets wind of what's going on and and helps pull them out of it. What about you? Do you have... Uh... Oh my gosh, I could go on forever. Um, yeah, you know, I love, the, I love the old black and whites, but I think uh, a lot of people don't like watching black and whites. And there are so many noirs in color now, modern ones that, you know, the Coen brothers have done a, a million crime movies. Miller's Crossing has got to be my favorite. Oh, it's, it's so great. It's one of the most perfect screenplays I've ever seen. I'm I've not sure read. how many people still remember that their first big film, sure. Blood Simple... Yeah 
was shot, shot here in, in Texas. Austin. Yeah, shot in Austin. Uh, and yeah, uh, Veronica Mars too. I'd put it, I'd put that one out there from the Ooh. local, uh, not anymore, but Rob Thomas, former Austinite, uh, new season is out now and it's, it's another, it's sort of, uh, the, the, the great hard boiled language put in an entirely new, uh, setting. So anyway, I, we, we could go on forever about that, but I think that we have pretty much run out of time. So thank you so much, Robert, for coming in and talking to us. My pleasure. Um, Likewise, Mary, thank you for coming in. Uh, Thank you to Co-op Radio for having us and putting up with us. Uh, Thank you to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for supplying our excellent intro music. Uh, This week's Chronicle, which is on newsstands now, or find it online at austinchronicle.com. And assuming they'll have us back next week, uh, we'll be back same time uh, next week, Fridays at 3 p.m. for another edition of the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op Radio. Thanks for listening.